0: Hi, this is Ben Lola. Back to the Bible Canada. On our second last program of week three in the Book of Ruth, we're wrapping up the series with a message called "God is Good All the Time." So turn with me to Ruth chapter four, verses thirteen to seventeen, as we join Dr. John Newfeld in today's lesson. Not long ago,
1: I attended the funeral of a young woman who died far too early. She had had a heart condition, and eventually, it took her life. Sitting in the front row of the pews were her mom and her dad and her husband and her three brothers. I have known that family for some time, and for some time I have believed them to be a remarkable family. I marveled at their courage, and I marveled at how close this family was, and I marveled at their faith. But I will never forget one story that was told at the funeral, which I am sure the family treasures. One of the last words that passed between mother and daughter as daughter was lying on her deathbed was mother's words. She held her daughter's hands and simply whispered, "'God is good.'" And one of the last words from the young woman was the very simple response, "'All the time.'" What a marvelous testimony. God is good all the time. Most believers in Christ can quote Romans 8, I know I often do. "'For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose.'" I once had a fellow believer paraphrase that in her own words. She said, For those who love God, everything is good in the end. And if it's not good, it just means that it's not the end yet. I love those words. But there is something to be added. Even the things that seem not good in the moment will seem good in the end. One day we will see that even our sufferings were necessary in order to achieve the greater good. We will thank God even in our sorrows. As James reminds us in James 1, 2-4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. One of the great theologians of the Christian church said, We do well to remember two things. One, all events happen by the ordination of God. And two, all things contribute to the advantage of the godly. Well said. If God be for us, who can be against us? We've come very close to the conclusion of our study in Ruth. And after today, all that's left is to analyze a genealogy, which, by the way, you'll find very exciting. And as we have seen, Ruth really is a marvelous book about the providence of God. So what is providence? It means quite simply what we've already said. All things happen by the ordination of God, and all things contribute to the advantage of the godly. Ruth is a book about providence. It's not a book about miracles. It's not a book with mighty battles. The Red Sea doesn't get parted. No one walks on water. The dead are not raised. Great armies are not vanquished. There are no appearances of mighty angels. No prophets thunder away against sin. In fact, there are not even great promises of God's help in the book. But as we have seen, God does help. In lavish ways. But Ruth is a book about mundane things, like harvesting crops and inheriting land and doing one's duty of caring for widows. It's about day to day life with its sorrows and losses and disappointments and hopes. It's like a lot of our lives seem to be. It's about life in a small town, a little town, Bethlehem, that later Micah the prophet would call a town too little to be properly counted in Judah. A town of no significance, where at least up till then, nothing important had ever happened. Maybe that's how you feel about your life. I'm just ordinary. I don't convert the masses. I don't change a nation. I will never be a philanthropist contributing millions. But Ruth is about a very important thing. And that's what we're going to talk about today. This is the story about ordinary people who discover the two things we have talked about. All things happen by the ordination of God, and all things contribute to the advantage of the godly. And it's this marvelous discovery that leads to the most amazing, exciting finish to this book. Oh, you might not see it because the modern reader is made to think that a great ending has huge tension and unbelievable action and then a mind-blowing finish. Instead, this book ends with a baby in the house and then a list of names that make up a genealogy. It, to our eyes, seems to fizzle out. But don't let that fool you because the end of the book speaks about a God that is good and with the assurance that any believer today who reads this book carefully will find himself or herself at peace, knowing that God is good all the time. The modern reader might have wanted a description of the wedding. Who was on the guest list and what did the bride wear and what was said and what did their getaway horse and carriage look like? And we don't get a glimpse of all the sentimental people who dabbed their eyes and cried and said, that was so beautiful. And then they all ordered the video and watched it over and over again, and it became the model of perfect weddings. Now, instead of all of that, we're greeted with one very simple sentence. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Ah, Even in those simple words, we are left to reflect on what God has done. There has been a progression in the book. In chapter 2, verse 10, Ruth was called a Nukriah, a foreigner. In 2.13, she was called a shifa, a servant who is the lowest of all servants with no hope of social advancement. But in chapter 3, verse 9, she is an ama, a maidservant who can rise in her situation. And now in chapter 4, verse 13, she is an Issa, the wife of a righteous, wealthy war veteran among the most highly respected men in her town. Simple words, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And yet words so charged with the kindness of God who allows the impossible to happen. Let's continue to read. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. We should note that Ruth had been married to Malon for some time, perhaps close to 10 years and that they had no children. Before birth control, most brides got pregnant not long after the wedding day, unless there was some difficulty in conceiving. And the normal way the Old Testament addresses women who do not have children is to say she was barren. Barren in the Old Testament was not a lifestyle choice. It was a tragedy. Indeed, the word barren describes much of the earlier part of the book. It begins with two barren women, Orpah and Ruth. Both women were no doubt idol worshipers, that is, they had a barren religion. And the men they married, men of Israel, who would marry such women were men who would not stand for their faith, but would gladly give it up and identify with the new gods of the land, barren men. And all the men die, and that leaves women widowed, barren again. Furthermore, their economic future is bleak barren finances and Naomi is intensely bitter her inner life is barren that just sounds like a barren story and that's why i find the wording in verse 13 to be significant the lord gave her conception you remember that abraham's wife sarah was barren and then she was miles beyond the menopause sign in the road of life yet sarah became the mother of the jewish people and sarah had a daughter-in-law rebecca And Rebekah, if you will recall, also was barren. But her husband prayed for her, and the Lord opened her womb. Rachel, Rebekah's daughter-in-law, was also barren. And the Bible says God remembered Rachel and opened her womb and gave her Joseph. And the mother of Samson was barren. And an angel appeared to her and gave her a word that she would bear a son. And Hannah, the mother of Samuel, was barren. And she went to the tabernacle at Shiloh to pray. And God heard her prayer. You know, in the New Testament, Elizabeth was barren, and she also passed the menopause marker a long time ago. But God met her husband in the temple and announced that she would bear a son, and her son would have the unique honor of being the forerunner of the Messiah. Psalm 113 verse 9 says, He gives the barren women a home, making her the joyous mother of children. God does that. How often we forget, assuming that these kinds of things, like bearing children, just happen but pregnancy is a gift of God. Psalm 127, verse 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. We do well to hold this in mind in a culture where the abortion rate is one in four, where childlessness is seen as a positive choice. We as believers see matters differently. We measure wealth not in our bank accounts, but in the faces of our children, for they are the only thing that we will take to heaven with us. The point that the book of Ruth is trying to make is that both the lack of children in the first marriage and her having children in the second was the providential hand of God. Ruth's pregnancy was given to her by God, even as God gave her to be a widow. Remember Naomi back in 121? Naomi said, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. We noted her bitter response then, but we never doubted the truth of her statement. It was indeed the Lord that brought her back empty. These events, the deaths in chapter one and the birth in chapter four, we are told, are both from the hand of God. For many of us, we would be content to say that Naomi's perspective was wrong, but what if it wasn't? And here's the question, if God brought it to pass that her husband and sons had died, would she hate God? Naomi never did, but she became bitter and she said that God had made her bitter. What's the answer to the dilemma? And when we come back, we're going to see that we can be joyful in the providential hand of God.
0: In the life of Ruth, we see such a strong theme of God's providence in working both in the good and the bad of life for His good purposes. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld will unpack what it really means to grasp the complete sovereignty of God in all things. Men, make a point of joining Dr. John Newfelt at a number of the upcoming Promise Keeper Canada conferences, on October 22nd, Dr. Newfeld will be speaking at the Promise Keepers Legacy Conference in Abbotsford, British Columbia, and then in the months to come at the Promise Keeper Quest Conferences in Toronto, Ottawa, Winnipeg, and Edmonton. We encourage you to register and to join us for these enriching and challenging events. For more information, check out promisekeepers.ca, or to find out more of all the upcoming Back to the Bible Canada events, visit our events page at backtothebible.ca. Now, let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Neufeld. The idea that God controls
1: everything may not sit well with some. But before you pass judgment, let me take you to some scriptures that tell us that very thing. Do you remember when Moses received the call of God? He was to go back to Egypt and call Pharaoh to let Israel go. Moses responded that he really wasn't a very good speaker. He said he was slow of speech and of tongue. He was saying he was clumsy with words, has never been eloquent. When I speak, I really don't inspire confidence in anyone, he said. And you remember God's shocking response. Exodus 4.11 says, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth, who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord?" Some of us will say, I get that God makes people seeing, but blind? Surely not. Well, how about Isaiah 45, verse 17? God is speaking, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Or in Joshua 11, verse 19, we are told that in Joshua's time, there was not one city that made peace with Israel except the inhabitants of Gibeon. And then we're told why. Verse 20 says, For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts, that they should come against Israel in battle, so that they might destroy them. Oh, the Lord's doing. 1 Samuel 2.25, we read of Eli's sons, but they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. And that, by the way, is but a small sampling of difficult verses found like this all the way through our Bibles. I know that many contemporary readers find this language shocking, but remember that Naomi didn't. She came back empty and knew this was from the hand of God. What she didn't know was that the hand of God was a loving hand. God is good all the time. In chapter 4, verse 14, we read, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. Notice the women are not saying, wow, that really turned out great, or you're so lucky. Sometimes things just work out that way, but rather they said, blessed be God. The whole thing is the hand of God as he providentially worked this matter out. Of course, on this side of history, we all see this very well. Israel was lurching into ever-increasing apostasy, and if Elimelech had lived— and Malon and Chilion as well. There would have been no story of redemption here except for one family that deserted the God of Israel and one woman who tried to be faithful while all the men in her life were going their own way. Little did Naomi understand that the great hardships in her life were orchestrated by a loving God to bring her fullness of faith and provide an avenue for revival in Israel and that eventually lead to the coming of the Messiah. She had no idea what God was up to, But she also did not know that God was going to redeem her by turning the suffering in her life to a place where she would have joy. Notice also the significance they place upon the boy. Up till now, Boaz has been called the Redeemer, but now the little baby is given that name. Why? Well, the answer is quite simple. This little child is the one who protects Naomi's family line and secures her land as an inheritance from God. But notice the desire the women have for this boy. May he be renowned, they say. Actually, in the Hebrew, it simply says, may his name be called in Israel. That's difficult to translate because it's another one of these idioms. We might say, in Israel, may he be the man, fame and honor. Now, verse 15, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Verse 15 not only celebrates the boy, it celebrates Ruth, the Moabite woman. This woman Naomi didn't want in the beginning. This woman whom she called barren, for when Naomi came back to Israel, she said she was barren, didn't have a thing in the world. And there was Ruth standing beside her, having committed to never leaving her. But to Naomi at that time, Ruth meant nothing. Ruth, whom Naomi saw no value in, this woman is now called better than seven sons. You know, in the ancient world, sons were highly prized because they carried the family line. The idea of seven sons is interesting. Seven is the number of perfection or of completion. It's the model of the good life. But the woman of the town say, this Moabite woman is better than what you had before or what you would have wanted in your wildest fantasy as you had imagined the perfect life. This woman is better. That doesn't lessen the loss. That doesn't mean that the suffering and the death didn't matter, or the pain was not deeply felt. But what the women of Bethlehem saw was that those horrible events, even those, were the very thing that God used to bring this result. And this result was the best possible result that could ever have happened to Naomi. I think there's something in this for all of us. I think that the most hopeless individual is the individual who, when he or she is suffering, believes that there is no redemptive purpose in the suffering. I know some feel that things will look more hopeful if they believe that God had no part in bringing about the suffering of the present moment. But if he did not, then no great and glorious plan has been brought into your life either. For a time, a very popular chorus that so many of us sang came from the words of Job, Blessed be the Lord in the land that is plentiful. And then in the next verse, Blessed be the Lord on the road marked with suffering. When there's pain in the offering, blessed be the Lord. But did you know that those words were spoken by Job after the loss of his wealth and the death of all of his children? Job 1 verse 21 says, And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, those words are true, but they are not enough. Ruth fills in what's missing, that God, the providential God, works all things for the good and not just the good, but the greatest possible good. And whatever you take from our study of Ruth, please take this. The end is better than the beginning. See, suffering is never random. And God desired not the good, but the very best. God desires the best of all possible outcomes. Yes, for us individually, that's true, but also for his grander designs. Remember, God does all things for his glory. God was not only interested in healing Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and the people of Bethlehem. He was interested in bringing about the birth of the King of Kings. And this story is one link in the chain as to how this came about. And knowing that makes my life and your life intensely rich and meaningful to know that I live for the glory of God, which is also for my long-term eternal joy. Chapter 4, verse 16 reads, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. This is not to be understood that Naomi nursed the child. She is far too old for that. Rather, it means that she became his guardian. The same word, nursed, is used in the book of Esther, where the word is used for Mordecai. Esther 2, verse 7 says that Mordecai took Esther as his own daughter. It's the same word. He nursed her. Of course, Mordecai doesn't have the ability to nurse his daughter. The implication is that in both Ruth and in Esther, it's one of caring for the child. We are to believe that Naomi played a major role in discipling this young boy, in training him in the ways of God. And when you think about it, Who is better equipped to do that, but the woman who has seen that God was good all the time. Even when life is filled with grief and losses, never stop hoping in God. Never stop believing that God is in control. Never stop believing that God is good to his children. I can only imagine that child grew up hearing the stories that Naomi told him. What a wonderful grandmother he had. And I wonder if you, my dear hearer, have recognized that yet. But I promise you this, that when you recognize that God is good all the time, you can weather any storm with confidence. God is
0: good all the time. John, this has been a great teaching today, but a tough one all the same. I mean, I can understand when difficult things happen and wrapping my mind around a redemptive God who takes the bad things and makes them good. Uh, but causing those bad things to happen, uh, that's, a, that, that's a difficult thing for some of us. Can you help me understand the difference?
1: Yeah, I think I have difficulty with the word cause as well. And I want to be very careful with how I say this. If God is sovereign, then all things happen by his permission. If you can imagine suffering standing at the gate and asking permission to come into your life, uh, then God at times allows that to happen. So I'm using the word allow but he doesn't stop it from occurring. He allows it to happen because of his own good purposes. I think that's different than saying that God causes a wicked thing to happen. We, we wanna say that God does not cause wicked things to happen, but that he does allow them to happen. And when he does, his allowance comes because he designs something good for us in it. I think that's the confidence that I can have.
0: So in the end, we can uh, rest easy that even though difficult things are taking place, God is ultimately in control of those circumstances. Yeah, he
1: even directs the difficult things. I'm going to say that even when the devil rages against us, that the devil only does that at the permission of God. That doesn't mean that God is responsible for the evil. But God will allow evil even to happen because he has
0: better purposes in mind. So God is good. All the time. All the time. Thanks so much, John, for today's message. It's been a great encouragement and something to really think about. Join us again tomorrow for our concluding message in the series on Ruth, right here at Back to the Bible Canada. It's so easy just to see God's hand working the good things that happen to us. But are we as quick to acknowledge that God is at work even in the midst of our trials and suffering? We must be careful to have a full understanding of God's sovereignty so we can indeed weather any storm and still say God is good all the time. I hope that this message has deeply encouraged you in your walk with the Lord today. Please join us again tomorrow for our final study in the book of Ruth with Dr. John Neufeld. Every month, thousands of ministry friends across Canada send in their gifts to support the ongoing ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, and we couldn't do it without you. Your gifts sustain our Bible teaching programs on this station, on our website, podcast, and mobile app. Your gifts provide all the audio programming electronically and all of our print resources for free, breaking down barriers for anyone to access trustworthy Bible teaching. Your gifts provide for our adult Bible engagement podcast and website, In Doubt, to thousands of young people every day, every month. Your kindness is critical to all we do. So thank you and please continue to support and bless this ministry with your prayers and gifts. You can call us today at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.